But here we are, greatest chapters, uh, this study, uh, 52 weeks to survey the whole Bible. Uh, the 41st passage we're looking at, which is Galatians 1 and 2. And I have to tell you, I got so excited. I was telling Bonnie, as uh, even this morning, I was reading uh, out. It's, it's cold here, 21 degrees this morning. I was reading, and uh, I told her when I came in, I said, this is so exciting. Galatians is, is a chapter, uh, or these two chapters, it's a book that was deep on Paul's heart, just so gripped him as he talked to the churches he planted uh, that were so close to his hometown, Tarsus. And it's also the place he went through the province, the Roman province of Galatia, on every missionary trip. It's the only place he visited every missionary trip, all three of his missionary journeys, right through the heartland of Galatia. And so what's important, and, and this is what got me stirred up this week, God's only protection from the coming end of days deception is what we learn in chapter one of Galatians and from the end of days defilements. Jesus said that, there, that, that iniquity and lawlessness will be rampant in the world and that will cause the love of many to grow cold. Do you know what the only protection for defilements is? That's in chapter two of Galatians. And for the deceptions Jesus warned about so much, that's in chapter one. So that's what we're going to see as we gather um, together at the table, like we're at a coffee shop and go through the scriptures. Now, now this is part of a, a bigger message, and it's something for you to think about, because uh, if you look at the news, like I read today, uh, that uh, China is building a secret naval base in the Persian Gulf and that the United Arab Emirates is allowing them to have space because they're, they're spending all this money and it helps their economy. That's fascinating to think about when we think about Satan's end of days plans. Now for us, uh, we're not trying to stop Satan's invasion of this world with deceit, the Antichrist coming. We're not trying to stop that. What we're called to do is to be serving the Lord and leading men and women to Christ and discipling them and personally living uh, through the deceptions and defilements. So how do we do that? Well, how do you prepare for Satan's end of days waves of deception? Do you remember what Jesus warned about most? In, in Matthew 24, his longest sermon on the end of days and the, the coming uh, you know, tribulation time and the Antichrist, all of those things, he says in Matthew 24, 4, 5, 11, 24, beware of deception. So how, how do we, as, as the dark storm of the end of days is, is upon us, and as Satan ramps up before his launching of the Antichrist, which I don't believe will be here for uh, the launching of the Antichrist, but I do believe that we're going to be here through the darkest, most troublesome times the church has ever known. How do you prepare for that? How do you get ready for this ramp up of Satan's evil? Number one, the Bible says, learn the truth. That means we really need to know. 
the book we can trust, the voice of God. How do we do that? Well, two ways. Do the 52 greatest chapter study and, and understand the whole Bible. And number two, start understanding how to use a study Bible, how to look up the key words and the key doctrines and the key themes, and also to have a listing of all those, those doctrines that matter for eternity. Learn the truth. Number two, meditate on the truth. Memorize and meditate on verses. And I'll talk about that, but I, I, I want to remind you, that's the preparation. It's not, you know, getting, uh, you know, a safe room or, or converting all of your assets to, you know, marketable during hard time. I mean, use wisdom. But how do you prepare for dark days? Learn the truth, meditate on the truth, and share the truth. And, and I say this every class, the church, the gathering of the body of Christ is so vital, but church is not sitting in a massive group like in a, in a football game watching the team down there. Church is the body ministering to one another, and most of us need a subset of the bigger body that we're a part of that we actually engage in the truths of the scripture on a personal level. Kind of like if you were on the other side of this table, and if, if we were mutually encouraging one another. Every one of my Bible studies I've been a part of all of my life since the early days uh, when I first understood campus ministry and the Navigators discipled me. And before that, my youth pastor at Lake Lansing Baptist Church discipled me. But all of the small groups I've been in have always deeply encouraged me. In fact, the small groups that I've been a part of teaching the 52 greatest chapters, I tell my wonderful wife, Bonnie, who's sitting over there doing all the work so that you can see this, I tell her those were the greatest days of my life. Getting up every morning, because I had one every day of the week, and meeting with all these different groups, studying the very same passage together and applying it, and then doing, remember our application prayer, in front of each other. You know what that does? It holds us accountable to someone we see, that we know. And you know what we used to do? We used to text each other. And we had this, this signal system between each other. And we would text, how are you doing? And what that meant is, are you in the word? Are you obeying the word? Are you, are you fleeing sin and confessing and forsaking sin? And are you actually working on learning the truth and meditating on the truth? Do you know what spurs us? when we share the truth in a small group. So if nothing else, if, if you're tuning out, you know, if you're part of those that YouTube says only stay for six minutes or four minutes or whatever, and we're right in the front end of this video, before you leave, I encourage you to become a part of a small group of believers. You say, I don't know how to do, well, if you don't know how to join one, then why don't you start one? How do you do it? Do the study. Find anyone at work that, that is all interested in you and spiritual things and say, hey, I'm in a new Bible study. Can you listen to what I'm learning? And, and just sit at lunch and show them what you found in the Bible. Show them your Bible that you're marking. And then grab your notebook and say, hey, these are the truths I found. And then I'd like to pray my prayer to the Lord. And if they're a believer, instantly the Holy Spirit will stir their heart because believers are drawn to being around someone that, that is engaging with God and his word and with truth and the Holy Spirit is energizing them. If they're not a believer, you could be the one that shows them what Christianity is like. And they might say, like last week I told you about that, that man at the coffee shop in Greece where we were last month said to me, 
why are you a Christian? And I was able to share the gospel. I was able to, to tell him the plan of salvation. So share the truth. Uh, become a part of a small group and start actively uh, engaging in these truths. And then uh, what we're going to learn combining chapter 1 and 2 is the justifying death, that's chapter 1 of Galatians, uh, death of Christ, opens for me the sanctifying life of Christ, that's chapter 2. So how I am not deceived is I understand the, the doctrines of God's gracious salvation. That's what chapter 1 is about, to resist deception. And how do I stay uh, undefiled in this world? I understand the sanctifying life of Christ. And then the last thing, and this is what is such a struggle. Do you, do you read Bloomberg? You know, Bloomberg, the, the huge business uh, service for stock people and financial people and investors. And also for anybody that's in business, they, they know about Bloomberg. They do all the quotes and everything. They have a little Bloomberg machine that gives you all the instant quotes. They're also a tremendous source of news. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, the professor said, always listen to businessmen because their money's invested, so they always are up on the latest trends and news. And so they said, you know, just listen to them so you know trends and global news because of the interconnectivity of business in our world. So I looked at Bloomberg today. You know what they said? We're more distracted than we've ever been before. Do you know why? It said that 90% of of people that have smartphones can't live without constantly look at them. And it showed every time they look at them that they take them right into the restroom with them and they take them right into the bed and they can't live without them and they're just constantly distracted. Here's the final point before we jump into our table work. What's the ultimate temptation? Anything that distracts our minds from seeking God, seeking, remember Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, seek ye, what? Say it out loud. First, the kingdom of God. So anything that distracts us from seeking God first, his word, reading it, studying it, doing this 52 chapter study, finding time to be uh, memorizing truth and meditating on it. Anything that keeps us from God, his word, his gospel, believing it, knowing it, living it, sharing it, and living out his truth on a daily basis, combating anxiety, combating our anger and our fears and our, our irritations that, that are not Christ-like, living the gospel. So there's a summary of our whole class. Let's jump down to the slides. And uh, you can see we're, again, uh, and this is right out of my journal, we're in week 41. We're looking at Galatians 1 and 2. This is the title that I gave this, God's Only Protection. This is how we can be protected from the coming end of days, deception. Remember, that's chapter 1, knowing the gospel. And defilements, that's chapter 2, understanding the crucified life. Now, how do we prepare for the coming waves of Satan's deceptions? Remember what Matthew 24, now grab your Bible, and I want to read this to you. I just like to look at that camera and think that you're sitting right there. And I'd say, okay, it's to the right, it's to the left. I always have to help people in my Bible studies because most of them don't know the books of the Bible. This is more valuable than your cryptocurrencies or your 401k or whatever investment accounts than your checking account or your ATM pin. This is more important. 
And you should be in a lifelong journey to knowing the books of the Bible and the content, the truth in all 1189 chapters. And I'm just, like I told you last week, I'm just trying to give you a starting, an example of a lifelong habit of learning the truth. And then grabbing parts of it and meditating on it and then sharing it. This, that's the simplicity of the Christian life. That's the power of what God wants to do. So look at Matthew 24, now that you've found it in your Bible, and look at verse 4. This is Jesus' longest sermon on the end of days, and he says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. See my Bible? What I do is I circle that word deceive. Now look at verse 5. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and will... There it is again. Do you see that word? Deceive many. Now keep going down to verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now go all the way down to verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. If possible, it's not possible. But if it were possible, their deceptions are so strong they would. That's strong deception. Deception, 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 deception. Chapter 24, when Jesus talks about the end, more than any other element of the end of days, what he said characterizes the coming end of days is Satan's deceptions. So what I did is I circled all those and drew a line between them. Deception, line down to next deception, line down to verse 11's deception, line down to... Verses 24 is deception. And every time I look in my Bible, I remember the day I found the four times Jesus said, don't be deceived, and the connection between them. So that's what I would encourage you to do. Okay, back to the slides. Uh, how do we prepare for the coming waves of Satan's deceptions? Well, one way would be to mark your Bible with Matthew 24, all four of those uh, occurrences, and then circle them and put a, a daisy chain line between them so that every time you look in your Bible, you'll see that. But what's the plan? Learn the truth. How do we learn the truth? We study the 52 greatest chapters, get an overview of the whole Bible. You should take one year, spend one week on each of these key passages, go through the whole Bible. And then in the process, learn how to use your study Bible. And, and to learn how to look up all those charts that are spread throughout, all of those footnotes, there are 25,000 footnotes. And then how to use the tables in the back. And those tables in the back have a listing of, of a doctrinal statement and of key theology points. And it's just tremendous. I told you it's like a distilling a whole year of seminary into one book. You just need to read it all. Number two, meditate on the truth. Begin an ongoing scripture memory habit. And what I do is I highlight key verses whenever I'm reading the Bible. That's why my Bible's all marked up. I'm like looking for treasures. Key verses that, that are explaining uh, doctrines I want to know and the way the Lord wants me to behave, the sanctifying verses, the sanctifying truth, uh, sanctifying truths. And then I love to share. And so start a small group. Now remember, and, and uh, think about this for a second, do you know why I'm doing this? 
Bonnie and I just got off last Saturday. We just got off the plane from two months over teaching in Europe. And now we're teaching three weeks in East Asia. We're doing it from this beautiful ministry studio. But Bonnie and I are constantly going from one group of next generation believers to another. And, and we travel from country to country, from studio to studio, from classroom to classroom. And my days of being all week long with the same congregation physically in that town where I see everybody at the gas station and grocery store and at church on Sundays and Wednesdays, those days are over for us for right now. Because we're on what our last local church we served, Calvary Bible Church, commissioned us, Bonnie and I, we stood at the front, they laid hands on us, the whole church gathered, it looked like a beehive. The whole church was surrounding us, everyone put their hands on the shoulders of the people in front of them all the way down and right in the center was, was Bonnie circled by the elders and then all of the deacons and all the people of Calvary were there and together they prayed and commissioned us. Our missions pastor led the whole thing. It was one of the most moving moments. In fact, I have a picture of it. Every time I get discouraged on the mission field, I look at my picture of all those hundreds of saints surrounding us like a beehive. And they sent us off to train for 10 years, if the Lord tarries, the next generation. And we're now in our fourth year. And it's wonderful. But you know what I miss? You, sitting on the other side of the table. When I used to do these in coffee shops and Paneras, I would be sitting with my Bible and my journal waiting for the next group to come in. And I'd have it all out and I would be underlining and marking and just busily sipping my coffee and working on it. And all of a sudden I would sense someone was near. And I'd look up. I can't tell you how many dozens, I bet hundreds of times. People have watched me reading the Bible and marking and underlining and being so busy that they come over and stand at the table and go, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but can I ask you a question? And it's always the same. What are you doing or why are you doing that? They, they figure out it's a Bible. It's kind of easy to figure out what a Bible looks like. It's it's different kind of paper than almost any other kind of book. And it's little, you know, columns. And and usually people don't, don't earnestly have such a fine print book in public, unless it's a Bible. Or they're cramming for their MCATs or LSATs, you know what I mean, medical or legal. But But they figure out it's a Bible. And there's a God-given, spirit-prompted curiosity in most people, unless they're totally, you know, mind-blown by sin or, or a cult or something. But for most normal people, the Holy Spirit kind of is saying, hey, that might be something you should look into. And they stand there. And I usually get 30 to 60 seconds, maybe 15, to say something which might make them stay for a while. And, and I, I, all the stories I tell come from moments like that. Look down at your slide. 
that's from sharing the truth, starting a small group, reading your Bible in public. I, I was encouraged by my youth pastor to take my Bible to high school. I started a Bible study group at lunch where we're encouraging others to grow, and in the process, you will grow. Next slide. This is our 52-week journey, and you see where we are in week 41. We're in Galatians 1 and 2, justified by faith, not law. Last week, if you remember, we were looking at the, the two greatest, you know, the greatest verse in the whole Bible, verse 21, and the Bema Seat, the second, you know, the greatest day of our life. And before that, we looked at the gospel. Each week, uh, I already have started, as you know, on next week, spiritual warfare and armor. And I can't wait to share that, but that's coming uh, in week 42. Okay, let's look at Galatians. Uh, this is the chronological order of all of Paul's 13 epistles. This is the date. So in A.D. Uh, 49, Paul wrote Galatians, probably from Antioch, or we're not sure, somewhere else, on his uh, uh, time between his first and second missionary journey. Um, and we've already covered all these. So we're looking at the first of Paul's epistles, okay? Um, it's right here after his first missionary journey because A.D. 49 is when it ended. So when was Galatians written? Right about here. So it's right between Acts 15, uh, Acts 14 and Acts 15. So, and a little bit later I'm going to talk about this, but I want you to see it. Paul trained 14 years in order to serve for 10 years. Look, Paul, right here it starts his public ministry we call them the missionary journeys. Look at from A.D. 33 to A.D. 47, he trained. Think about that, okay? Now, this is the 52 greatest chapter method, uh, the devotional method. You make a title like I did. That's what's on the board that I've shown you. After reading the passage through, you summarize it in one sentence. Then you look for as many lessons as you can find, and then you write an application prayer asking God to change your life. And I've told you that's the hardest part. Okay, back to our title. Galatians 1 and 2 is God's only protection from the coming end of days deceptions. Remember we saw that in Matthew 24, what Jesus said. And that is understanding the gospel as Galatians 1 tells us. And it's the only way to resist the evil age in which we live. And that's what chapter 2 is about, the crucified life in Galatians 2.20. Okay, now this is my journal. Um, I write in it at the top of every week. Uh, I'm on week 41. This is the passage. And then, this is how I titled it. I told you one sentence. Well, I did one sentence for each chapter. What is the true gospel of grace as opposed to What's the religion of works? That's what I saw as the message of chapter 1. Now chapter 2's sentence, to distill down the whole chapter 2, is how does the justifying death of Christ, so look at justifying, that's what we learn the true gospels about, the justifying death of Christ. How does that open for me. What do I mean by open? I mean, how does that let the life of Christ be unleashed into my life? And that's called sanctifying. So the sanctifying life of Christ is unleashed 
once I've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Now, what does sanctification mean? Now, this is simple theology. Usefulness. God wants me to be useful to him. So, sanctification is about me increasing in usefulness to God. How am I useful? I listen to him. I obey him. I honor him. All of those things are byproducts of sanctification. And when I listen, I'm useful. And when I'm obeying him, I'm useful. And when I uh, honor him by my life, I'm useful to him. And that's how he brings people up to talk when you're sitting at a coffee shop or anywhere else. Okay, remember Jesus most often warned his disciples about the coming global deception of the end of days. That's what Matthew 24 is all about. By the way, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and the whole book of Revelation are about this global deception of the end of days. Now my question to you is, are you ready? Do you know how to get ready? Jesus explained how we get ready is we must eat his word every day. Now we've already covered that. That's Matthew 4. Remember Jesus, uh, Matthew 4, 4, when he's facing off with the devil, said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So, so when Jesus was, now, now think about this. Jesus was face to face with the devil. Now, I don't think you and I will ever get that opportunity. Oh, praise the Lord, I don't want that opportunity. Because Satan's not omnipresent, and there are seven plus billion people, and he's busily trying to do his plan all over the world. But Jesus was so important that for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan and his demons were pestering and seeking to derail God's plan, and Jesus faced the most intense persecution and temptation that anybody can face. And remember, he hadn't eaten, and, and he was out in the wilderness. That's all Matthew 4 describes the whole thing. Okay, that's face-to-face -face temptation. What did Jesus say when Satan is ramping it up and trying to tempt us and deceive us? What do we do? Look back at the slides. Jesus said we must eat his word every day. And I would look across the table at you right now and say, have you spent time in the Word? That's what I do. You see, that's, do you see why it's so important to share the truth and be a part of a small group? If you don't have someone looking at you, it's so easy humanly to kind of push God off in the distance and think he's out there and we're glad he's out there, but I'm struggling and nobody knows what I'm going through. Well, someone sitting across the table from you or sitting drinking a cup of coffee with you or having lunch with you, does know what you're going through because there hath no temptation overtaken us but such as is common to man. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But God is faithful and he'll not allow us to be tempted above what we're able but will with temptation makes a, a door of escape. That's why you need someone looking at you and saying, you're feeling sorry for yourself. No, you're not believing the truth. In fact, you know how I call this technical director over here sitting at that table, that console, I call her my wonderful wife, Bonnie. Do you know what Bonnie's, one of her greatest ministries to me is over these last 38 years of marriage? She always says to me when I'm discouraged and when 
my world is collapsing around me. She says, honey, you're not thinking and believing and focusing on the truth. You're letting Satan's lies derail you and, and diffuse all that the Lord wants to do and, and cause you to be discouraged. And, and she says, believe the truth. Now, where did she get that from the scriptures? She just reminds me. She shares the truth with me. You need a truth speaker in your life, and you need to be speaking the truth to others. So I look across the table and say to you, are you eating the word? See, that's what a small group does. Are you reading and studying and eating the word of God? Are you memorizing and meditating on the word of God? And who are you sharing the word of God with? See, when you're in a small group, then you start challenging each other to share the gospel with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with fellow students, with your neighbors. You share the gospel. We need to be stirred up. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says we're supposed to be stirring each other up. The Greek word is paroxysm. We need to be, to be jolting one another to say, are you in the word? Are you memorizing, meditating? Are you sharing the gospel? Because that's what Jesus said when he returns. He wants to find us doing those things. Okay, back to the slides. Paul adds to what Jesus said about we must eat the word of God. Paul adds something. We must guard healthier sound doctrine. And the guard is uh, what, what you do when you think of pickpockets around. You hold your pocket, you know, you clutch your bag. Hold closely sound doctrine, truth about God. Why? Because Satan targets his deceptions against the doctrines of Christ's deity, God's inerrant word, and the gospel of grace. And the question is, are you ready for the dangerous storms of deception that are swirling around us? This week we're studying the truth of the gospel. We're studying how to resist Satan's deception. In fact, next week even more. We're getting into spiritual warfare. Then while we live in this dark and evil world, we find that the truth of the justifying death of Jesus opens his sanctifying life, that I really can change, I really can be useful to God. How? I choose to live no longer just trying harder and failing often. That's, uh, I've been a pastor long enough, people tell me that all the time, I'm going to try a little harder. I said, well, if you try a little harder, you just fail a little bit more, because it's not trying harder. It's now living, inviting Christ to live out his truth through me. That's what we're going to see in chapter 2 in Galatians 2.20, and that's Paul's testimony. What, a, what an exciting week we're in. <laughs> well, we're living in an age of dangerous biblical literacy among Christians. Here's what Barna found out. Among those people taking all the Barna uh, polling and surveys, less than half of all adults could name the four Gospels. And those who profess to be Christians struggle to identify more than two or three disciples. I mean, if you just know the books of the Bible, you would know, you know, a lot about all of these. You know, you'd know the Gospels and the disciples. 60% of Americans can't even name half the Ten Commandments. Uh, I love the billboard that says, uh, which part of thou shalt not is unclear, you know? But people just don't know. 40% of Americans believe that Jesus committed sins, which is heresy, which is blasphemous. Half believe anyone who is generally good or does enough good things 
will earn a place in heaven. By the way, that is religion. Man devising a way to get to God. That's religion. And that's what this week's all about. The, the grace, the gospel of grace, is God devised the way. Religion is man's going to devise a way. And religion is false and wrong and damnable. And 40% believe the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon are all the same. Same spiritual truths. Okay? Now remember, at the end of days, Jesus said truth is under attack and lies will abound. That's why Jesus said, watch out for false teachers and counterfeit religion. Now this is fascinating. When faced with a similar situation at the turn of the 20th century, evangelicals, what's an evangelical? Someone that believes that you were born lost and a sinner and condemned for hell and you have to be born again through receiving Christ. That's an evangelical. Evangelicals, people that are born again, produced a work called The Fundamentals in 1909. And by the way, some of you right away say, what's that? What's that? Well, there's a link down in the video description below. It's, it's a set of books that were written in 1909 by the who's who of Christianity of the day. And who were those? R.A. Torrey, he was D.L. Moody's, uh, Moody's assistant, uh, a tremendous Bible teacher. He started Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Another uh, one of the authors was B.B. Warfield. Uh, by the way, I have books by all of these uh, men. You see these seven, they're on this list. They're all classics of Christianity. Uh, B.B. was from Westminster. He wrote so many good books. Some of his best are on inerrancy of the Bible. J.C. Ryle, he was a, a pastor and a devotional writer. G. Campbell Morgan, uh, he's the inspiration for our uh, modern day Bible expositors like John MacArthur and uh, W.A. Criswell and Swindoll, you know, uh, all of those who are expounding the Word of God were greatly challenged by G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, he's the one that would not teach on a passage until he read it through 40 times, like John MacArthur says we all should do. Uh, C.I. Schofield, he did the first study Bible. It's called the Schofield uh, Study Bible. James M. Gray, uh, who was the famous president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And then, of course, A.T. Pearson, who touched America coast to coast as a devotional writer. So these who's who, these uh, scholars distilled down what are called the, the fundamental, the foundational beliefs to distinguish a true believer from a false or counterfeit one. And they boiled down all biblical theology into seven essential doctrines. And they present and explain these seven doctrines in a multi-volume set called... The fundamentals. Now look up for a second. That's where the term fundamentalist comes from, which, by the way, is a negative term nowadays. Uh, they call Islamic terrorists fundamentalists, you know, that they're following the fundamentals of the Quran. And by the way, if you do follow the fundamentals of the Quran, you do start operating the way the Quran says you should, which would cause you to have strong feelings against Christians and Jews. That's, that's the underlying message there. And so they call them fundamentalists. And then they call Christians fundamentalists. Usually they pick you know, people that are not Christians that are doing crazy things like, like uh, you know, bombing abortion clinics or killing abortion providers or whatever. Do you remember that time period in America where that was going on and they were fundamentalists? That's not what the word means. The word means someone that follows the fundamentals of the scripture. By the way, what are those fundamentals? Well, look, look at the next slide. 
Here's the list of the seven essentials to guide us uh, to, and, and help us to uncover when someone's a false teacher. It's, uh, it's a way to see who's on course to deceive others. And here are the seven. Number one, inspiration. All we know and believe about God is based on his words, so they affirm the inspiration and reliable historicity of the Bible. So in this multi-volume set, there's a whole section on, and Warfield and the others wrote about inspiration. Look at this, what they considered a fundamental creation. God is revealed from cover to cover in his word as the creator of the universe, just as described in the Bible. So they exposed, in 1909, the grave errors of evolutionism and Darwinism. Hey, look up. Gender dysphoria that we're going through right now, where, where right now in America, you know, this whole CRT time, critical race theory, and all the fighting that's going on politically, if you're paying any attention to the news. Do you know what that's all based on? Not understanding that Genesis explains the origin of everything and that God created humans as male and female. There aren't, you know, a blur that, that no one should know what their gender identity is. That is an attack from Satan. God's word says God created them male and female. Man and woman created he them. So your gender identity is an imprimatur of the creator of the universe. So why do you think that evolution wants to destroy the foundational book of the Bible? Because everybody needs to be in gender dysphoria for the Antichrist, who is going to be a gender dysphoric person himself. He's going to be right in this whole confusion of gender identity while still allowing for gross immorality. But, but you can... You can disregard God's laws, his rules, his created plan. Okay, back to the slides. Uh, evolutionism and Darwinism, they talk about the dangers of, which we need to listen to because most mainline churches and denominations and colleges, even Bible colleges, don't believe in creation anymore. Number three, the third section of this fundamentals is God's word teaches clear doctrine about Christ, his church. And in this section, they name specifically the cults that presented false gospels in their day. So over 100 years ago, they say the Jehovah's false witnesses, Mormonism is false, Christian science was false, spiritism, and so on. The fourth area is depravity, because the mainline Christian denominations were getting away from what God's word declares, which is the reality of sin. So they affirmed that man is not basically good. See, this is the pre-World War I time when they thought that everyone was basically good. And if you could just fan the little spark, it will get better and better. And by the way, World War II kind of destroyed that view for a while. But they were going against that view and they said, we're all born sinners. Look at number five. God's word only presents biblical salvation as received only by faith in the incarnate Christ Jesus who became sin for sinners to save them. What, what is that? It's the doctrine of substitution. It's the, the reality that we cannot be saved unless we trust someone who perfectly substituted our place, taking the wrath of God against our sin. Oh, so here are the, the, first five key doctrines, the essentials, to help us uncover 
when someone's a false teacher. A false teacher will not affirm inspiration, creation, as defined in the Bible, the doctrines as defined in the Bible, depravity and substitution as defined in the Bible. The last two, imputation is number six in this seven essentials. And here's what imputation is. God's word teaches that salvation cannot be earned at any level. It's dispensed, this is important, by God and not by any church. That's why people think if they join a church, they can be saved. No, the church doesn't save you. Only God saves you. Then you're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, which is the church, which has many local manifestations, but you've got to find one that believes the Bible. But it's not dispensed by a church or a cleric. And thus, look at this, they, they clearly, not clearing, clearly expose the errors, look at this, of the biggest works religion in the world. Roman Catholicism, and every other religion of human achievement and works righteousness. What is that? Finding a method to get to God. Roman Catholicism, Catholicism has divide, devised the most elaborate method to get to God, rather than the method God devised, that God ordained, that God performed and and did through Jesus Christ. And then finally, number seven, Christology. They most fervently declared that all error starts in some way with an incorrect view of Christ. That's how you know what a cult is. Look up who they believe Jesus was. And they strongly affirm the deity, the work, and the personal visible return of Jesus Christ. So those are the fundamentals. By the way, they uh, uh, some wealthy people today financed this, the production of thousands of copies of these. They sent them to every missionary. They sent them to every pastor in America. And they said they would even provide them for the Sunday school teachers of America. That's how in 1909 to 1915, how in, intensely interested they were in preserving the truth. So a century after this warning sounded by the greatest teachers of God's word alive in that generation, how are we doing? Sadly. We're doing terribly. Today, each of us is living in a very distracted world. All around us are distracted people with distracted minds, distracted families, which leads to a distracted life. What happens with distraction? Well, it leads to aimlessness, uselessness, hopelessness, powerlessness, even for us as believers. Each day, we're battling distraction sent by Satan because he wants to keep us off course. For believers, distraction often means we know so much more biblical truth than we take time to act upon. Now, look up. We're supposed to be daily learning the truth, daily meditating on the truth, and daily sharing the truth. There should be someone that looks at you and says, are you seeking the Lord today? Or are you spending your time gaming or listening to the latest music and wanting to know all the lyrics or, or not, couldn't, can't wait to get the next you know, episode or sports or finances or whatever? Anything Satan can do to distract us. By the way, remember this? Remember what I wrote up here? What's the ultimate temptation? Anything that keeps us from God's word is truth, his gospel. That's... that's what we're battling. Okay, back to the slides. Distraction means we know so much more than we act on. That's the ultimate temptation. Anything Satan can do 
whether it's our job, our finances, our relationships, our own pleasures, that will distract our minds from seeking God and his word and his gospel and his truth. Okay, that reminds us how we prepare for Satan ramping this up is learn the truth, have a daily plan, meditate on the truth, have a daily plan, share the truth, have a daily plan. Okay, here's a MacArthur Study Bible. Sometimes I, I talk about that and I don't show you. This is actually the page on Galatians. Um, it talks about the title. In every book of the Bible, he does the same outline. Uh, it's the only one of Paul's epistles specifically addressed to churches in more than one city. By the way, it's also the only one where Paul doesn't commend the churches. Um, and he talks about all these things of uh, uh, the setting for the book. Uh, then he goes through all the key ideas in every verse. This is for chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians. And, and this... Uh, kind of dark, bolded writing, turning away, is the scripture. And then these uh, words, the next three lines there are his comments. And this is where you learn about Greek words. Uh, uh, turning away is better translated deserting. The Greek word was used of military desertion, punishable by death. So Paul says, you are doing the ultimate you know, disloyalty to Christ. You're deserting like a soldier from his general. Wow, Paul was really troubled. Then, this is Galatians 2.20, and we're going to spend a long time on this verse, but I've been crucified with Christ, and it tells you to go back and look what is in the notes on Romans 6. And you remember, we already studied Romans 6. Then it talks about Christ living in me, and remember Ephesians 4.22, that we're to put off and be renewed and put on. All of those truths he reminds you about, that's how this book is so, this study Bible is so valuable. Now, here's my journal. Look up. This is my journal that I write in. I show it to you every week, uh, and, and I, I take my notes as I sit and, and work on this, and I, and, and I write them all down, but for you, I type them. So let's go into my type notes. So here are the lessons I've found. See right here, I write in my journal lessons, and look how many I found, 11. And, and I write out the, the kind of simple phrase, and then I put an application for myself. And you say, boy, that's an awful lot of stuff on one slide. Well, that's why we're going to go through them one at a time. So take your Bible and look at Galatians 1 and 2. And you can look up. I'm going to read it. Let me find it with you. Now, remember, we're sitting at the table. An important thing about this sharing time that I'm talking about right there is that we all bring our Bibles, we all bring our journals, and we look up verses in the Bible. I remember how many times in the small group I would say, okay, let's look at verse one, and everyone would just look at me. I'd say, pause, Bible, Galatians. And you know what a lot of them would do? They'd go to the front, and they'd look up the index. And they'd go, oh, it's page what? Well, let me find it. Galatians 1. And one of them would say, it's page 1033. Whatever it takes, find your Bible and look up verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ. And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of, what's the last word of verse 2? Say it out loud. Galatia. Okay, look at the lessons. 
Galatians 1, 1 and 2, Paul wrote to the churches, notice in your Bible it's plural, of a region which is unique in Paul's writing of epistles, because he usually writes to a local church or to a, a, one of his sons in the faith, Timothy or Titus. So, so this is unique, and it's also the only one where Paul doesn't commend them. But look what I, I wrote. Where's Galatia? Why is this so important? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Here's a map. By the way, this is water. See, there's Crete and roads and everything. This is just a map to show you Galatia. Look at it right here. So where was Galatia? It's right there. But the reason I'm showing you that is, look what it's right next to. Tarsus, Paul's hometown. And look, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch. That's Galatia. It's kind of in the heart of modern-day Turkey. But oh, see these lines here? See all those lines? Those are Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys. Paul traveled through this Galatian region on every missionary journey. And it's right by as he passed through his hometown. It's right where Timothy's hometown is. It's where Paul and Barnabas were mistaken and stoned. It's where Timothy joins Paul and Silas. All of these huge beginning events and, and continuing events of Paul's ministry are in this region. That's important. Okay, second lesson. Look in your Bible at verse 3. I'm going to read it. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. That's the substitutionary work of Christ. But look at verse 4 continuing. That he might deliver us from this present evil age. Hey, do you understand? Jesus, the goal is not only to save us forever in heaven and prepare a place for us and have a, a mansion for us that we talk about from John 14. Actually, it's not a mansion. It's a room. It, it meant one room in the Father's house. So we're going to have rooms next to each other in our Father's house forever, which is more of that sharing together. But do you understand? It's not just to get us to heaven. Do you, do you see what it says in verse 4? To deliver us from this present evil age. See, uh, God's only protection from the end of days deceptions and defilements and the end of days waves of deception. That's the goal of salvation. Okay, back to the side. So liberated from sin shackles. Christ's death for our sins was to deliver us from this present evil age. His justifying death opens for me a sanctifying life. Are you seeing are you seeing a decreasing frequency of sin in your life and an increasing frequency of responding to the Lord? Well, these two verses I just read and what's coming again is talking about the justifying death of Christ. Here, let me show you the justifying death of Christ. I, I over and over show you this. I'll use my notebook here. This is a picture of all of my sins. So John Barnett's sins. And here's me. And in 1962, this is what I look like. Me, all my sins. I was a sinner. By nature, by choice, and God declared me to be one. And my mother patiently introduced me through the scriptures to Jesus Christ and told me if I would call on him. Now, the reason she patiently 
introduced me because I was scared to death. In 1962, Russia was moving atomic missiles into Cuba to bomb the US. And in school, all of us were watching videos of of Alamogordo and, and uh, all of the atomic and hydrogen bomb tests, and they were showing us the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so we were scared. I mean, they scared the life out of all the students in the schools, and it was to get everybody ready for facing off with Russia. And so I, I started talking to my mom, and, and she, at Bible story time at night would say, well, if something happens with the atomic bomb or anything, mom and dad and Karen and Sharon are going to heaven, but you're not. Well, that's one method of evangelism. And did you know it never bothered me until one day I came home from school after they had us crawl under our desk and crouch with our arms over our head. That was part of school. They would train you when the siren went off to crouch under your desk in case an atomic bomb strikes near us. Well, I was crouched there with uh, my arms over my head, and I was reliving in my mind the picture of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And I thought, there was nothing left of those buildings but just, you know, little, little bits of them. And the trees were charred and blown away. And I thought, I'm not going to make it under my desk. Well, when I got home from school that day, I said to my mom, why am I not going to heaven? And she smiled and opened the Bible and explained the gospel to me. And in the instant that I knelt in the only quiet place in our bathroom, our one little tiny bathroom, I knelt on the floor. My mom put the Bible on the toilet seat and showed me John 3.16 in that instant, when I prayed and asked Jesus, who I believe died for my sins and, and purchased my salvation, I asked him to save me. Look what happened. This is justification. God put all of the record of my sins from 1956 to 1962 to 2021 till my last moment of life, all of them, which God knows. He took them off me and put them on Jesus Christ. That's the justifying death. Jesus is my substitute. Jesus justified me by, by removing the record of my sins. But that's not all justification means. He also put his righteousness on me because that's God's plan. I can't get to heaven by being good. I can never be good enough. I have to have someone that's perfect, and I'll never be perfect. So God put all my sins on Jesus, and Jesus put his perfect life on my account with God. Okay, back to the slides. That's the justifying death of Christ. And that allows me to overcome the power of sin. Christians go through life living in two worlds. The past work of Christ for me, that's his justifying death. The present work of Christ in me is sanctifying me. That's the two worlds we constantly live in. Christ's justifying one-time death on the cross starts a lifelong, sanctifying, life-changing walk of faith. It changes me a little bit more every day to look more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to respond to situations and people more like Jesus would, and to live more and more moments in step with Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, here's the third lesson in Galatians 1. Beware of false doctrines. The Galatians were being taught a false gospel of legalism. And it says 
Let me read to you in verse 5. Uh, it, it says, To whom be glory forever and ever. I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you. Remember, that's the word desertion, uh, like military defector that had a death sentence. And um, he says, uh, and pervert, verse 7, the gospel of Christ. And if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach, let them be accursed. That's a strong, that's anathema, damned forever. If I said before, I say now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. Okay, look back. Paul, in every way possible, is saying, beware of false doctrine. Here's one false doctrine, probably the clearest one. This is the Roman Catholic pathway to eternity. Roman Catholics say that, that we're born void of grace, destined for hell. By the way, 99% of Roman Catholic doctrine is true. They use all the right words and doctrine. They just add one horrible thing to it. Works righteousness, self-righteousness. And they say that water baptism performed by the priest with your parents bringing you takes away your original sin. So, see, they've devised a method to get you to heaven. And every time you do a venial sin, you kind of get away, but then you do good works and sacraments and draw on the merits of the saints, and, and those are like good, good uh, helps toward heaven. But then if you commit a mortal sin, you go right back down to being void of grace and headed toward hell but you have to go back to confessions and do penance and, you know, go to mass and then you have another little problem. But when you die, if you die right here in the middle, then you have to go to purgatory to get purged. If you haven't cooperated with God in their program, then you go to hell. But if you're a saint, you die with enough righteousness and go right to heaven. You say, what a strange system. Yep, that's what 1.2 billion people, and many of them live around you, believe. How do you share the gospel with them? This is my favorite way. This is a track. You hear me talk about tracks? For Roman Catholics, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus tradition, it's my favorite track on Roman Catholics, how to lead them to Christ. It's by a wonderful student of the word, Mike Gendron, and down in the description, there's a link right to his website. You can find out about that. But basically, what Paul said is dangerous is people who think they can, through religion, through some devised method, get merit with God. This is Catholicism. You're born a sinner. That's true. Baptism washes away, gives a fresh uh, start. That's false. Uh, menial or Venial sins can be... Removed by confession, penance, merit, and good works. That's false. Uh, only Christ can remove them. Mortal sins, there aren't venial and mortal. Put you back to the start and put you longer in purgatory. That's false. You can go to hell for even one sin. Doesn't matter if it's venial or mortal. At death, only saints go to heaven. That's true. The rest go to purgatory. That's false. Isn't it something? Here's one true thing, they say. Here's another true thing. Time to purge shortened by indulgences in heaven, that's false. So basically, Roman Catholicism adds this works religion of merit to the truth, the doctrine they teach that's absolutely true about the deity of Christ and the inerrancy of the word and, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. All the things they, they say are true that are, the 99% are, 
are ruined by the 1% of works-based righteousness. Only God devised the plan. Rome or any religion can't devise the plan. Now look at this. Here's a summary. All the world's false religions have the same element. Sinners inventing a way to get reconciled, to become God's friend instead of his enemy. The gospel is God explaining how he can be reconciled to sinners. As sinners, we don't have any power to satisfy his anger. We have no goodness to attract him. We have no righteousness that can earn his forgiveness. We're convicts, I like to tell people. We're offenders. The divine court of righteousness declares all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we've been justly and eternally banished from his presence. The wages of sin is what? Death. That's banished from his presence, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What does that mean? The Bible says each of us are hopeless, helpless, impotent, ignorant, blind, and doomed. Any hope for relationship to God has to come from him. It can't come from us. So see, religion is when it comes from us. When we try harder, do more, figure out a a way. Now let me just show you a little doctrine. A Christian is justified by faith because of justification's permanent declaration by God. However, to the man who does not work but trusts in God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited. That's what God says. Look what religion says. A Catholic is justified repeatedly by sacraments and works because he loses the grace of justification each time a mortal sin is committed. Loses, loses the grace of justification. That means it gets unloosed from him and he loses it. But the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and recover the grace. By the way, that's a quote right from Roman Catholic theology. Look at salvation. This is what God says. A Christian is purified by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. What does religion say? We're purified by the fires of purgatory. Like Jesus didn't do enough on the cross. You undergo purification in purgatory so as to achieve holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That's in the Catholic doctrines. It's number 1030 and 1031. What's the real way of salvation? This is back to that nice track by Mike Gendron. We're all spiritually dead, destined for hell. When Jesus saves us, it's by faith in Christ alone, and we receive the righteousness of God credited through justification. See what these verses say? He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy, Titus 3, 5. Justification is a permanent verdict by God that declares a sinner righteous because of his faith right here in Christ. God continues to see the sinner as if he were righteous, even if he sins. Isn't that comforting? See that? Because the basis for justification is the righteousness of Christ. Wow. But what is sanctification? After I'm saved, it's just getting me more useful to God. But only justified people are glorified and go to heaven. But if you reject the only way to heaven, which is the one God devised... So if you reject religion and receive Christ, then you have salvation. If you reject Christ and his gospel of substitution and justification, you're condemned to hell. So we're supposed to guard the gospel. That's what it says in Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul was taught the gospel. Look what it says in verse 11. 
But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which is preached by me is not according to man. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it by man. It's not religion. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now back to the slides. Guard the gospel. What does that mean? What's the simple message of the gospel we're supposed to guard? Well, Paul captures it right here in Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe that God the Son, Jesus Christ, came into the world. The Bible says he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perf the only perfect life, that he died as a substitute, as the Lamb of God on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father because he finished the work and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's what we call the drivetrain of the gospel. You must believe in the true Christ, the one described in the Bible, in the true Christ's death and resurrection for you. But how do you get it? You just trust Christ, not yourself, not your method. You put your faith in him, the substitute, the, the lamb of God that took your place. You affirm that your belief is in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died for you and rose again. You believe that. You acknowledge Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you receive the forgiveness he offers. That's the simple gospel. Back to Galatians. Remember we just covered guard the gospel? Look at the next section and we've run out of time, and often this happened at Panera and Starbucks. You know, we kind of overstate our welcome. In verses 13 to 17 and 18 through 2-1, God's training program, God called and saved Paul and trained him in Arabia. And he spent a lot of years in training and preparation. I showed you that at the beginning. But look at this. Paul was shaped for ministry during those years of obscurity. He trained for 14 years in preparation for his 10 years of missions trips. Now here's my summary of that, that I, I shared with you already in Acts, but I'm gonna show you again. Here are six lessons that I emphasize in my small groups. Study all you can because preparation is vital. Paul spent three years in the desert with Christ. Wait for God's timing because growth takes time. Paul spent seven years in Tarsus. Listen to a Barnabas, because everybody needs discipleship. Three years in Antioch. That's where Paul came down to his testimony. We see that he wrote in Galatians 2.20. Run the race because God can do so much in short order. Paul spent 10 years on his missions trip. Learn contentment because God can use us anywhere. Paul spent the next 10 years in prison. So 14 years right here, uh, studying and waiting and listening. 10 years in missions and 10 years in prison. That was Paul's career. What's the essence? Love Jesus more than everything because no one is indispensable. We're all gonna get old and wear out and get weak. Think prison, loneliness, and death. Paul kept going, finished the race, trusted God. He was content even in prison. So those are the lessons. Uh, Galatians 2.7, do what God calls you to do. Um, you know, so many people are wanting to be someone else. Just let God use you as his ambassador right where you are. Um, Galatians 2.10, stay tender. Galatians 2.11 to 15, integrity matters to God. Galatians 2.16, justification is only by faith. Ah, we have to read that. Look, look up for a second. Let me read to you Galatians 2.16. It's one of my memory verses that I review regularly. Knowing that a man, Galatians 2.16,
is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no man be justified. Back to the slides. Justification is only by faith. Beware of religion. Believe the gospel. Justification is when God punishes Jesus on the cross like he commits every sin we have ever sinned. And then, then God erased the record of our sin and put it on Christ. That's justification. Finally, we come to Galatians 2.20, crucified living. Um, and this is what it says. We have two parts of one life. The justifying death of Christ is the past. Notice what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He loved me. He gave himself for me. All those things are in the past. That's the justifying death of Christ. That's one half of Galatians 2.20. Here's the other half. The present, the sanctifying life of Christ. It is no longer I living right now. It's Christ, present tense, living in me. And the life which I now live in the present tense in the flesh. I'm present tense living by the faith of the Son of God. I'm, I'm letting Christ sanctify me. I'm agreeing with him. I'm surrendering to him. I'm, I'm letting him work out his truth in me. Here, here's the summary. Christ justifying one-time death on the cross starts a lifelong sanctifying, life-changing walk of faith. It changes me a bit more each day to look more like Jesus because I'm eating his word and it's transforming me to act more like Jesus. I'm surrendering to his spirit to respond more like Jesus because I love him and I keep his commandments and to live more and more in step with Christ, which is called being full of his spirit. Okay. Okay. Time to go. Three final challenges. Number one, find someone with whom you can share your findings. Get started today on a healthy diet. Learn some healthy verses. Down in the comment section, I have the Navigator verses I recommend. Use a healthy study Bible. I recommend the MacArthur Study Bible. Reference a healthy theology book. I recommend Grudem and pray for us. Okay, it's time to go. So we're going to have our closing prayer, and I'm going to pray for you. And this is what I'm praying for you. That you commit in order to prepare for the growing darkness to learning the truth by being in a good Bible study, like our 52-chapter study, and by, by systematically learning doctrine, okay? Meditate on the truth. Memorize verses. Share the truth with others. Get a small group going and live the truth of the gospel that the justifying death of Jesus Christ opens for me his sanctifying life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would guard the gospel, that we would see that religion is, is our human invention of how to get to you. But the gospel is you devise the plan. We're helpless, hopeless, impotent, and condemned by your righteous holiness. But you made a way. You are a loving, saving Savior God, who offered your one and only Son in our place. And if we'll just reach out to him and, and cling to Christ as our substitute, our only hope by faith, we have endless life. And then you start making us more useful. I pray for everyone that's in this 52-chapter study that they will cling 
by faith every day to the truth of the gospel and that they will allow your justifying death to open that sanctifying life, that it's no longer me trying harder, but Christ, as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, living in me. I pray you'd unleash that truth even more in my life this week and even more in the lives of all these precious brothers and sisters in Christ in this study this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in Galatians 1 and 2. And Lord willing, next week, spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. God bless you.